Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, I'm really, in, really encouraged, and I got that announcement this week um, from SGA. I just really appreciate your kindness and your generosity uh, over the years to give to that ministry. Uh, what a tremendous blessing. We, uh, we and a few other, my wife and sons and uh, a couple other people in the congregation, I think I've told you before, have had the opportunity to go to to Russia when we did the Emmanuel's Child Project, and it's just a great blessing uh, to be a part of that. And some of you um, have been in country on missions trip uh, there. It's uh, it's a tremendous work, and I'm thankful uh, that we have an opportunity just to be a part of it. Thankful for your faithfulness over the years uh, to that ministry. Um, uh, I want to continue to encourage you to reach out to each other, those around you, as we sit in different spaces or different spots in the uh, first and second hour. Um, if uh, after the first hour, you should make sure that you head to the uh, adult Sunday school class because you want to get that teaching and the fellowship there. And, and then afterwards, come back in. I leave at the end of this first hour just to give me a little bit of a space between the two services. But I would like to be able to talk to you here in the first service. So make sure you make your way back in if you can do that. That would be great. Uh, tomorrow, we have our men's ministry, 7 o'clock uh, behind me in the adult Sunday school room. And thank everybody for who everybody who's helped in going to this two transitions or to this uh, two service that help us in our transition to that. Uh, just as far as snow goes, uh, guess what? It's Ohio and it snows. All right, there you go. Uh, here's the official uh, announcement. Unless it is a level three snow emergency, we will meet, Lord willing. Right, so now you don't have to ever, ever have to worry about it. So I do appreciate you coming out. When I came here a little bit earlier in the morning. It was still dark outside. Snowflakes were so big. Obviously, the roads weren't plowed. It was hard to see the edges of where the road was. I just drove in the middle. I figured that's fair. Um, I certainly want to make sure I don't run off the road, so I'll just take my part in the middle. So it's good. Thank you for being here. All right, let's open in a word of prayer, then we'll turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to be here, and we're thankful for bringing us here safely and for all these uh, folks that have come out uh, uh, this morning, uh, uh, enduring the, the weather, and we're thankful for that, thankful for getting us here safely. Pray for, again, everybody else who's traveling uh, in route, that you might keep them safe also. We just love you. We're so thankful for your truth, for your word that transforms and changes our lives. And we're thankful, again, for the opportunity to be a part of your ministry with the great blessing that uh, Slavic Gospel Association has been to me personally and to this uh, fellowship. Just thank you for allowing us to be co-laborers uh, with you. Guide us, we pray, as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Take your Bible and open to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I'm, we're familiar territory at least a little bit. Here, verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 11. John 16, verse 1. The text says, these things, have, these things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Again, this morning we're coming to this portion of Scripture a second time. We made it through the first four uh, verses last week. Uh, I say this a lot, but again, this is uh, just an absolutely fascinating uh, portion of Scripture. And I really think the text before us is one that's not well understood because I think people tend to read over top of what it says and and arrive at a conclusion based somewhat on a a popular superficial explanation and understanding of the text without really considering very carefully what the text says. And obviously we want to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't do that. So again, let's set the context. We're familiar with that, right? We're, we're here a very late Thursday night. It's Passover week. Uh, literally just hours before the Lord is a- arrested and falsely tried and murdered on Friday. Now, Judas, the one who's agreed to betray him um, uh, with the devil, has uh, uh, been dismissed by Christ from the group. The 11 remaining disciples have Uh, walked with the Lord. They've left the upper room. They were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And and in these last few hours with them, the Lord is sharing with his uh, disciples those things that are dear to him. Uh, He's trying to encourage their hearts. Uh, He's telling them again of the tremendous love that he has uh, for them. Uh, Sometimes the portion of scripture that we're working our way through is referred by the commentators, the theologians. It's, It's the farewell discourse of the Lord. And that's really what it is. This is this last night with them. Now, we know the story, the background story. We know at this point the nation has rejected Christ in total. It's exactly what John said back in chapter 1. He came to his own, and those who were with him did not receive him. And again, it's not just that they didn't receive him. It's not just that they rejected him. It's that they hated him. And they're going to have him murdered. They tried several times previously and unsuccessfully throughout his ministry to have him murdered, but they're going to finally succeed by blackmailing the Roman governor, Pilate, and he will have the Lord executed, although Pilate knows that the Lord is innocent. He's not guilty of any crime. They'll execute him by way of Roman crucifixion. And the Lord had been telling the disciples all along the way in his ministry this reality, the reality of his impending uh, suffering and death. Now, he began speaking to them in kind of veiled allusions uh, concerning his death. Back in Matthew 9, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from you. Matthew 12, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, Matthew 16, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Nothing's going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he starts with these veiled allusions, and then he moves to more specific instances where he speaks very openly, very directly, uh, concerning his death and resurrection. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Uh, it's after the transfiguration of Jesus, and he's got Peter, James, and John uh, with him there up on the mountain. And Jesus commanded them, saying... Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man, here it is, has been risen from the dead. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 22. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And as the time uh, of, of the Lord's appointment with the cross is drawing even closer, it's very much in the forefront of his mind. Again, as he's nearing Jerusalem, he's got this right in the forefront of his thinking, Matthew 20, verse 17, 
as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on their way he said to them, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, scourge, and crucify him. Now, Jesus says sovereign God knows that. He knows everything. He knows what awaits him. He knows the future. But as a man, the pressure and the anticipation and the anguish of what's coming is rising in his mind as he considers the spiritual and the physical suffering and the torture that awaits him. And make no mistake about it, as a man, he fully experienced every kind of emotion that we would experience. In fact, in just a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he anticipates the upcoming events, he's going to sweat great drops of blood in expectancy of the suffering that he's about to endure. Because he's come into the world for the express purpose to bear the wrath of God on behalf of men who will repent and believe upon him. And he, Christ, knows very much the reality that it is indeed literally a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and face God in judgment. Now, as I told you last time, the disciples really have no category for this kind of thinking. The fact that the Lord is telling them he's going to suffer and he's going to die, uh, be mistreated and executed. It's beyond their imagination because they believe rightly that Jesus was the Messiah. And associated with the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament was, was the fact that when Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom. And he would establish a throne in Jerusalem and he would throw out all the enemies of uh, Israel and bring salvation to the nation from his throne there in Jerusalem. And from that throne, he would rule over the world because that's what the Old Testament promised the Messiah would do when he came. That's what what they were expecting. And that's why they asked the questions, you know, can we sit on the right hand or the uh, left hand? They're arguing about over those kind of issues. We want to sit on your right hand or left hand in your kingdom. But again, he's been rejected. He's going to be killed. And the disciples, if you will, they don't like the plan. Obviously, they can't see the full picture at this moment, but they don't like the plan. They don't like the fact that the Lord's told them that he's going to be mistreated. And on top of that, they really don't like the plan or the fact that the Lord has told them that he's going to leave them. The whole thing's confusing to them. The whole thing makes no sense to them. And on top of that, not only has he told them that he's going to leave, he's told them that when he leaves, uh, that the world, because the world hated him, the world is going to hate them. Because the world persecuted Christ, uh, the world is going to persecute the followers of Christ. Because the world murdered Christ, the world is going to murder the followers of Christ. So at this moment, things are looking pretty bleak for these guys, right? They're pretty bleak for the disciples and from their perspective. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with heartache, confusion. They've got a variety of questions that they're confronted with, a variety of issues, and they just don't understand the whole situation. They don't have answers. But then in the middle of this whole thing, the Lord has promised also that he's going to send to them a helper. John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, if you remember when we went through that text, I told you another is the word alos. It just means another one like me. Another one of the same kind. Basically, the Lord's saying, as I'm God, he's God. Just as I am God, he's God. Just as I've been with you, listen, he's going to be in you. He's going to come. He's going to be the one who's going to give you strength to endure. He's going to be the one who's going to allow you to stand against the temptation and the troubles and the trials of this fallen world. He's the one who's going to come and give you all the answers that uh, that you need to your prayer. He's the one who's going to teach you. He's the one that's going to enable you to give faithful testimony. He's the one who's going to indwell you. He's the one who's going to come and give you his love, his joy, his peace. 
in John 14, 16, 17, the next verse, the Lord further identifies him, said he is the spirit of truth. That is the spirit of truth whom the world, listen, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. Make sure you mark that in your uh, thinking because we're going to come back to that in a moment. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Chapter 14, verse 26 of chapter 14, the Lord says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26, the Lord says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. And his primary, his primary role is to teach true followers of Christ, true disciples of Christ, Christ's truth, to bring to their remembrance all that Christ said, to point them to the person of Jesus Christ, to bear witness of the person of Jesus Christ, to testify about the person of Jesus Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit for the believer. And here in chapter 16, verse 13, the Lord says, but when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whenever he, whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So again, when the Holy Spirit comes, the promise of Christ to his disciples, he's going to put all truth in their hands. Again, he's going to point all truth about the person of, of Jesus Christ. He's going to point us to the person of Christ. He's going to give testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring into our remembrance all that Christ said. You know what that is? Basically, that's a promise of the New Testament text, right? That's a promise of the New Testament scripture. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings all truth. He's the one who moves in the lives and the hearts of the writers of the New Testament to write down or to bring to their remembrance all that Christ said and all that Christ did so that we might have that material available to us so that we might know him. So it's this internal work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that's his mission, the Holy Spirit's mission to the world, to continue to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, to testify to us the person of Jesus Christ, to testify to us the truth of the gospel, to understand his truth, and then to proclaim his message to the world. And when we realize or when we recognize the internal work of the Lord, the Holy Spirit in our life, we see the transforming work in our lives, right? We see him changing us. He's the one who opened our minds to receive the truth of the gospel. He's the one who helps us understand our need for the Savior. He's the one who brings conviction of our sin. He's the one who awakens our guilt. He's the one who brings us to a knowledge of the fact that we're under God's condemnation because of our sin. Therefore, he causes us to repent. He causes us to turn away from our sin, to turn and embrace Christ and embrace Christ alone. It's the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again. The one who causes us to be born from above. He's the one who regenerates us. Uh, again, he opens our blind eyes to see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, transforming and changing us from the inside out, making us new creations in Christ. He's the one who grants us forgiveness of sin. He's the one who grants us eternal life. Now, Again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the lives of those who believe. Therefore, he fills us with his presence. Right? He fills us with his presence. He grants us his fruit. I love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, etc., and so forth, as Paul says in the, uh, the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter. So as bad as things are in the context of the story at the time, uh, for the disciples, the fact that Christ is going to leave them, uh, they're going to have trouble in this world because of their association with Christ. Christ has also promised 
to not leave his followers as orphans. He's going to send to them another one just like him to help them. And obviously to help us, right? Which we're eternally thankful. We're not left alone in this world. Now I say all of that and bring that to your attention because all of those issues are really going to play into the verses before us this morning. So let's begin to look at the text here as it unfolds. I told you already we finished up the verse 4 last time, but just by way of a very quick review... Remember, at the top of the chapter, the Lord has continued to speak on the issue of conflict. The world's hatred of Christ, the world's hatred of the followers of Christ. Remember I told you uh, chapter divisions verses, they're not divinely inspired. So here at the top of chapter 16 is probably not the best place to put in a chapter division, but nevertheless it's here. Because the Lord's still speaking about the issue of persecution and the world's hatred of Him and those who follow Him. Again, look back up to uh, verse 18 of chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now remember I told you the world here, that definition of the world, it's not the physical earth, but it's the fallen world system under the control of Satan and his demons. It's the world system that is in opposition to God and rebellion against God. It's all the twisted values and unrighteous ambitions and evil ideologies and evil practices of all unregenerate people. It's everything that is anti-Christ, anti-Scripture. It's everything that sets itself in opposition to God, in opposition to God's kingdom, in opposition to Christ. And I told you, out of 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world, what? The whole world lies in the power of the evil. Very important for us to remember that in general, just as you're trying to evaluate and figure out things in life, but very important to remember the definition of the world as we I looked through these verses this morning. Again, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now go ahead and drop down to the beginning of uh, chapter 16. And just in case you didn't notice, because you're maybe coming in a little bit late this morning, the outline fits the uh, title, uh, the title of uh, this morning's sermon, Conflict, Comfort, Conviction. And the outline fits the, the sermon title. So here's the conflict. Conflict with the world, verse 1, chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, that, by, that you by, um, may be kept from stumbling. They'll make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming where everyone who kills you and thinks that he is offering service to God, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. So again, Christ wanted the disciples, his disciples, to know in advance what was going to happen. He didn't want them to be trapped. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. He didn't want them to stumble. He wanted them to know the reality of what's coming. He wanted them to know that persecution was coming for them, and much of it is going to come from the false religious system of the day. Verse 4, these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So again, he wants them to continue to have confidence no matter what happens as the next hours unfold. He wants them to have confidence in him that he is indeed who they think he is. He is the omniscient God. He knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. 
He wants to deepen their assurance of Him in spite of the persecution that is coming. And while evil things are foretold and they are going to come to pass, He wants them to also be encouraged and us, listen, that when all of the good things that He has promised to them likewise assuredly are going to come to pass. Everything that Christ says is going to happen is going to happen. Now He has been the one who's been bearing the brunt of the persecution up to this point in, in their relationship. The religious leaders have been attacking Him. But in His absence... Uh, they're going to have to, these men are going to have to learn to stand up on their own. They're going to have to stand up under the force of the persecution that they're going to face in his absence because of their association with Christ. So that's the conflict. And now Christ is going to bring some comfort. Next point, comfort to his disciples. Verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now I told you earlier, as the Lord's appointment with the cross is looming nearer and nearer, Uh, I think that reality is becoming more and more prominent in his thinking. But unbelievably, the disciples are so self-centered, so self-focused, they're not really concerned about him whatsoever. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, should have been the focus, their focus. Uh, They should have been offering to him comfort uh, and offering comfort to him, but, but they don't do that. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Why? Because the Father, the work the Father had sent him to do is going to soon be accomplished. And then he says this, none of you ask me where you're going. None of them are concerned enough to ask him, where are you going? Now, I know it's true that previously in the, in the, in the context of uh, John, uh, Peter and Thomas had previously asked kind of a, a question out there, where, where are you going? But in both those situations, there really wasn't a genuine concern about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're asking for different reasons. Peter and uh, chapter 13, verse 36 of John, uh, ask where you're going, thinking the Lord is going on some kind of earthly journey. Thomas 14, verse 5, ask more, but it's really uh, a question, not so much a question, it's really an objection to what the Lord has said. So the issue here is that the Lord is pointing out the fact that they're more concerned for themselves than they're concerned about Him. I'm going to Him who sent me, but none of you ask me where you're going. Verse 6, but... Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Again, these things, everything he said that's going to happen, all the coming persecution, his departure. So again, the focus of the disciples is them. They're not focused on the upcoming suffering of Christ. Their hearts are focused on them. They are self-absorbed. They're self-absorbed with their own grief. Sorrow has filled their hearts. They're anxious. They're troubled. They're occupied with themselves occupied with the current issues that are seemingly overwhelming them at the moment. They're not concerned about him, and they're really not excited for him. They're not excited for the great blessing. If they really believe that he's the Messiah sent from God, they're not really excited for him to go back to the Father, right? They're not, they're not considering that. Now, you might remember earlier in the text of John, chapter 14, verse 28, the Lord actually chided them for this very issue. He says in John 14, verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. But again, they don't because they're self-focused. Self-centered. The focus is completely on them. Verse 7, Christ says, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So again, the disciples' focus is completely on themselves. But listen, the Lord's focus is completely on them. They're focused on themselves. He's focused on them. 
He's trying to assure them that although they're going to lose him for a time, it's going to be to their advantage that he goes. But I tell you the truth. Now, in the Greek, the personal pronoun I is in the emphatic, so it's really something along the lines of I tell you the truth. I who love you. I who am about to lay down my life for you. I tell you the truth at your advantage. You have to believe me. You must believe what I'm saying to you. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, it was to their advantage that Christ part, because that means, again, he has completed the mission for which the Father had sent him into the world. It's a reference to the atonement. It's a reference to Christ being the substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice, the one who is able, the only one who is able to reconcile both God and man together, as Bruce said earlier. It's, it's, it's a playing out. It's going to be fulfilled of God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It, it's to your advantage that I go in. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go. Because again, the Lord, uh, his departure, as the Lord had told them previously, his departure would fulfill all that God had sent him to do. And his departure, at his departure, he would go and prepare for them a place where they could come and spend eternity with him in heaven. He said earlier in, in chapter 14 that at his departure, that would enable them to do even greater works. Now that at his departure, that that would impact even richer knowledge to them. At his departure, it would allow them, in fact, to draw closer to him, namely through the person of the Holy Spirit. So no longer is just Jesus with them on a physical uh, day-to-day basis, but actually the truth is God's going to come and indwell them permanently. So again, it's to their advantage that he goes away. Because if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. Because, again, the Holy Spirit can't come until after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And and that's for a couple of reasons. First, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the person and works of Christ to those whom uh, God calls to himself. And, again, that's not fully possible until until Christ finishes the work of redemption on the cross, ascends to heaven, to the Father's right hand into glory. Secondly, the Father has given the Holy Spirit to the church as a way to vindicate the Son's faithfulness in completing that work of salvation that God sent him to do in his death and resurrection. And you can look in John seven thirty nine in uh, Peter's uh, sermon on the a- day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that whole section, and that kind of plays that reality out. So again, Christ says, it's to your advantage that I go. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the help will sure not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. So again, Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would give them eternal life, John 7. The Holy Spirit would dwell within them, John 14. He would instruct them and us, right, through these men and through the te- teaching of the New Testament, John 14, verse 26, empower them in their witness and activate for them all the promises that God has made uh, through uh, Christ. It's to your advantage. So you have a conflict with the world. You have comfort that he's trying to give them. Again, they don't have a full picture of it, but he's trying to encourage their hearts and comfort them. And now comes the convicting of the Holy Spirit, verse 8. And when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
Now, this is the very portion I warned us at the beginning that we have to be careful that we don't just read over top of the text and come to a preconceived idea of what the Lord is saying here. Because to do that would be to miss the point completely of uh, the text in front of us. So again, verses 8 through 11, those verses really hinge on one word. It's the word convict. When He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, most people, when they come to this portion of the text, they say, well, simply what's being taught here is that when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to work in the life of the non-believer and make them understand the fact that they are sinful, that they're unrighteous, they're headed for judgment. Therefore, He's going to make them feel guilty. But that's not what this text is teaching. In case I said that too fast, I'll say it again. (laughs) That's not what this text is teaching. Now, the Holy Spirit does that work. I already said that earlier, right? The Holy Spirit does the work in the heart of the unbeliever, right? He's the one who grants repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. And it's true that no sinner can repent and be granted forgiveness and eternal life and salvation apart from the internal work of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's the Holy Spirit who causes regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again, born of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that takes us from death to life, from darkness to light. It's the Holy Spirit that takes us from hating Christ to loving Christ. That's all true. But again, that's not what this text is teaching here. Again, remember the context. Back away just a moment. Remember the context. It's the context of what? Hatred. It's the context of hatred. It's the context of conflict. It's the hatred that the world has towards Christ. It's the hatred that the world has towards Christ's followers. It's a reality of the fact that the world persecuted Christ. That means the world's going to persecute Christ's followers. And that's exactly what Jesus said at the first four verses in chapter 16. He's reiterating that fact. Conflict with the world because of your association with me. Again, some comfort, verses 5 through 7, by the sending to the, his disciples the Holy Spirit. But again, in the context of conflict, in the context uh, of some comfort, here comes the convicting work of the, of the Holy Spirit against the world. And again, look very carefully what the text says there in verse 8. And he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, right? He, the helper, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict whom? What's the next two words? I'm sorry? The world. He will convict the world. What is the world? The world is the fallen system under the control of Satan and his demons. The world is that which is in opposition and rebellion to God and against Christ. It's the world with all of its twisted values and unrighteous ambitions and evil ideologies and practices of all the unregenerate people. The world, again, is everything that's anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Scripture. The world is all that sets itself in opposition to God, to His kingdom, and opposition to the person of Jesus Christ. And I just told you earlier, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When the hel- when, and He, the Helper, right, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now that word convict in the Greek is el inko. It's a word that's tri- translated a variety of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's fault, reprove. Sometimes convince, expose, punish, convict. 
two of the terms kind of related, convince and convict, but those are somewhat related words, but they're not always necessarily identically the same. A man can be convinced of a doctrine or convinced of a duty, but a man can also be convicted of a crime. So again, it's the context that really determines the meaning. And used in a legal sense, uh, el inca or convict really means to indict by evidence. You could translate it to prove guilty. Again, it's a word used in a courtroom setting. A, a word that would be used uh, by a prosecutor in a grand jury. And it really is the idea of the word conviction as it's used objectively. So what he's saying is this word, it's, this is objective reality. This is the Lord saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to render a guilty verdict because the proof is in. That's a conviction. Right? A, a conviction, a person has been measured by the law, has been found guilty. That is objective reality. That's what he's talking about. Now flip the page, but subjectively, if you, see, if you say, I feel convicted, you're saying, well, I feel bad about something. I ate too much. I feel convicted about that. I stayed up too late. I'm, I'm convicted. I, I feel bad about that. I feel bad about sinning. That's subjective. But that's not what the Holy Spirit is saying here through the pen of John. That's not what the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. To take a subjective view of this to a subjective interpretation is to completely miss the point of the passage. In fact, Arthur Pink makes this comment. He says, There is hardly a sentence in the Gospel of John which has been more generally misunderstood than the one just quoted. With rare exception, he says, this verse is understood to refer to the benign activities of the Holy Spirit amongst those who hear the gospel. It is supposed to define his work in the conscience prior to conversion. It is regarded as a description of his gracious operations in bringing the sinner to see his need of the Savior. So firmly has this idea taken root in the minds even of the Lord's people, it's difficult to induce them to study this verse for themselves, study it in light of what precedes, study it in the light of the amplification which follows, Study the terms employed, comparing their usage to other their usage in other passages. If this be done carefully and dispassionately, we feel confident that many will discover how untenable this popular view is. He's not talking about subjective internal conviction of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. He's talking about objective reality when the person of the Lord, the person of the Holy Spirit, comes. And he goes on to this, uh, adds this, Pink adds this, he says, it should be er very evident that something must be wrong if this verse be so interpreted as to clash with Christ's explicit statement back up in John 14, 17. That's why he said, make sure you note it. The, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. The world can't receive the spirit of truth. So again, listen very carefully. Uh, the world cannot and the world will not receive the truth to be saved. He, when he comes, the helper, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict whom? The world. In the sense of rendering them a, a guilty verdict, a conviction with, with view to condemnation and judgment. He's not talking necessarily about convincing them. He's bringing a guilty verdict, again, without any confession or feeling of guilt, by the guilty one. It's irrelevant. He's just making a statement. This is reality, objective reality. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
Now, let's look at a couple, just two or three different verses. I'm going to have you turn a couple different places just to try to help you see that and, and to prove that point. Uh, look back. Obviously, we're going to come here, so put a mark to get your way back there easy. But go to, uh, back to Luke. Go, go to Luke chapter 3. Verse 19. In Luke 3, verse 19, you have John the Baptist confronting Herod about his adulterous, incestuous relationship that he had with his brother's wife. But when Herod the Tetrarch was, here's the word, reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, on account of all the wicked things which he had done. Now, the, the New American Standard updated version uses the word reprimand. When Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by John. But reprimanded is too weak of a word. It's not a proper translation. It's not an adequate translation. E- even the NIV says rebuked. That's much stronger. When John the Baptist confronted Herod, he convicted him, El Inco, like a prosecutor in a courtroom. He laid out all the evidence. He rendered a final verdict. He said, you're guilty. Here's the evidence. Just listen, don't turn there. John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be, here's the word, exposed. Same word, elenco. Everyone who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light because they don't want to be convicted that they're guilty. John 8, verse 46, Christ speaking. Which one of you, here it is, same word, convicts me of sin? Now, now, most certainly the Lord's not saying in that context, which of you is able to convince me? Or which of you is able to make me realize I've sinned? He's saying, which of you convicts me of sin? He says, which of you can substantiate a charge? Which of you can furnish proof of sin against me? Turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 20. In the context, you have an elder who has sinned and an elder who has continued to sin and wants to continue in that sin. Verse, 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke. Same word, elinko. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may be fearful of sinning. Render a judgment, a verdict against them of guilty. Turn over to James. James chapter 2. Verse 9. James 2 verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are, here it is, convicted, Elinko. Convicted in the sense of you've just been declared guilty. If you show partiality, you're committing a sin, you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Just listen in the context of speaking about false teachers, Jude verse 14, and about these Also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convict, render guilty. 
all of the ungodly and their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The book of the Revelation, Christ speaking in regard to the church at Laodicea. The Lord says, Revelation 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove, same word, and discipline. So again, the variety of the ways that the word is used in a variety of different passages in the New Testament, it really means convict, render a guilty verdict. Go back to John 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, John 16, verse 8. When He comes, the Holy Spirit, He'll convict the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world. He's going to charge as guilty the world that hates God, that hates Christ, that persecutes Christ, that persecuted Him, that murdered Him, that persecutes Christ's followers and murders them. When He comes, He's going to convict the world. He's going to roll out all the evidence. And the final verdict is guilty. Again, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit making people feel bad. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit's internal work of conversion in this context. He's talking about the Holy Spirit's role as prosecutor. This is objective condemnation. Again, this is courtroom language. This is not subjective realization of a condemnation. Now, just so you know, Arthur Pink is not the only one who holds this position. Uh, on this text and this word. J.C. Ryle, for example, commenting on the verse, uh, John sixteen eight, he says, inward conviction is certainly not the meaning of the word rendered, reprove, or convict. It is rather refutation by proofs, convicting by unanswerable arguments as an advocate. That's what is meant. He says this, believers and God's people are not said to be the subject of the Spirit's reproving work. It is the world that is to be reproved. He goes on and says, I believe that the meaning to be something of this kind, that after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the great advocate of Christ and God's people shall come into this world in such a mighty power that he shall silence, convince, and stop the mouth of your enemies and oblige them, however unwillingly, to think of Christ and Christ's cause very differently from what they think now. And particularly, he shall convince them of their own sin, the righteousness of Christ, and the victory over which Christ has gained over Satan. He shall insort, uh, he shall insort, uh, short, uh, be the crushing advocate. The world shall not be able to resist her or uh, gainsay. He's going to come and convict you. He says this a little bit further. He says, The Holy Spirit shall first and foremost convince or convict the world concerning sin by obliging my enemies to see that though too late, they're not believing in me, speaking in the third person for Christ, right? By obliging my enemies to see, although too late, they're not believing in me, they made an enormous mistake and they committed a great sin. And he shall make them feel at last that rejecting Christ, rejecting the one whom they ought to have believed. MacArthur, John MacArthur, would also hold to this same kind of an interpretation, this position on this verse. When the Holy Spirit comes in the world, he's going to bring conviction. He's going to bring a guilty verdict. And how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit bring conviction? How does he render final verdict against men that they're lawbreakers, that they're violators of God's rule, rules, that they are rejectors of God's Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? He does it through the preaching of the Word. Through the preaching of the Word, the Word of God. God's Word, God's law, that's the standard. 
You violate God's word, you violate God's law, you're a lawbreaker, therefore you're guilty, you're convicted. You reject the truth, you reject the, you're, you're, you're guilty, you reject the Savior, you're guilty. And again, it's through the word. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's talking about the issue in the context there of tongues, and it's really improper order, or he's trying to promote the proper order in the church, and he's really condemning them for all the nonsense that was going on when they met together. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole world should assemble together and they all speak in tongues in an ungifted manner, unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're all mad? So if an unbeliever walks into the, to the meeting and there's all kinds of things that are going on that are unimaginable and unintelligible, he's going to think it's a whole thing but a bunch of nonsense. He goes on, however, in verse 24 of chapter 14, 1 Corinthians, he says, but if all prophesy, not in the sense of telling the future, foretelling the future, predicting the future, but speaking forth the word of God, basically says, look, if you get up and preach, rather than speaking some kind of nonsensical gibberish, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, here it is, the word, he is convicted. In the sense of, again, rendered guilty by the, the word of God. He's convicted by all and is called an account. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. That's true. There has to be a proclamation of the truth. And the person of the Holy Spirit is about proclaiming the truth, proclaiming the person of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit in the world convicts the world that they are in rebellion against God. And he does it through the word, just propositional truth. Somebody asked me that question yesterday. What does propositional truth is? I mean, there it is, just one, one truth after another. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even, here's the word, expose them, convict them. How do you do that? Again, you do it through the Word. You prove them guilty. You expose the darkness through God's Word. Uh, 2 Peter 4.2 Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Here's the Word. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove. You convict them because they are guilty. You just tell God's truth. Titus 1 verse 9 Speaking about the qualifications of an elder. It says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that you may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute, there's the word, those who contradict. Titus 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them, elinko. Reprove them severely that they may be sound of the faith. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you again it's objective condemnation it's courtroom talk it's not subjective realization it is objective condemnation in the courtroom of god so when we stand up and we preach the word of god we prosecute the world we bring conviction in the sense that we through the word of god render a guilty verdict against the world that they are in rebellion against god they are in rebellion against his word therefore they are under his judgment and i wish we had more time to go into this but listen every faithful preacher throughout history of god's dealing with men have been prosecutors on god's behalf convicting the world of sin their lack of righteousness and the judgment to come all of the old testament prophets all the prophets of the nation of israel were always indicting the people of israel and judah of their sin against god they were prosecuting god's case against them 400 years of silence between the 
Old Testament and the New Testament, and then God sends John, sends John the Baptist, and what does he do? He does that very same thing. He preaches a message of repentance. He's preaching that men are guilty. He prosecutes God's charge against them, God's case against them. You snakes and vipers, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Same thing when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. He comes preaching the message of repentance. And again, it's all men have violated God's law. All men have violated God's standard, his word, his holiness. And again, God's faithful prophets, God's faithful teachers, God's faithful preachers are God's prosecutors. They just lay out the truth. And it's the word of God again that brings that final conviction of sin and judgment against the world that stands in rebellion against God. And God's word says you're guilty. That's why the world hated Christ. This is the judgment. Light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. They hated him because he proclaimed the truth. The world hates me because I testify it that their deeds are evil. John 7, verse 7. John eight forty three. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you can't hear my word. You're their father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. who's a murderer from the beginning. Doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies, but I speak the truth. You do not believe. He speaks the truth, and that's reality. We're all under judgment. So throughout the history of God's interaction with men, God sends faithful men to the world to proclaim the truth, and what, are the, what does the world do to them? The world murders them. The world murdered the prophets of God in the Old Testament. The world murdered John the Baptist. It executed the Lord Jesus Christ. It chopped off Paul's head. And the world has murdered faithful Christians, faithful proclaimers of God's truth from the very early days of the New Testament all the way up in the day in which we live. The world hates Christ. The world hates God's truth because the world's guilty before a holy God. And again, the world hates those who follow Christ. All the disciples, right, murdered except for John who dies in exile on Patmos. Those 11 and were hated, unjustly persecuted, killed, like many faithful men and women today are. As a side note, therefore, it makes no sense to try to be liked by the world as some people try to do in their quote-unquote ministries. Because the world is guilty before holy God. And judgment has been rendered, and the execution of that judgment is coming. What faithful men need to do is just be faithful to God's Word and just tell that truth. We need to warn people of the truth. We need to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. Not to feel good about their sin and their rebellion. And if we can just kind of some way make the world like us more and get real close to them and kind of act like them, maybe we can somehow get the truth. And you need to be told the truth that you're in a whole lot of trouble. The fact that Jesus Christ came into this world at Christmas time, that the world has no concept of what Christmas is, means that you're in a whole lot of trouble. God has judged your sin. And when the Holy Spirit comes into the world, and He has, right? He came on the day of Pentecost. His presence speaks of the guilt of the world. His presence speaks to the guilt of the world. Listen very carefully. The Holy Spirit is not in the world to make the world a better place to live in. But the Holy Spirit is here to furnish proof of the world's guilt and sin 
and to vindicate the one whom the world cast out, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's not here to make everybody sing kumbaya around the fireplace and we all just get along. No, the, the Holy Spirit is here to furnish proof of the sin and the guilt of the world and to vindicate the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, Arthur Pink makes just a tremendous, stunning, thought-provoking statement. Listen, he says this. I've never heard anybody put it like this before. He said the Holy Spirit ought not to be here at all. He says that's a startling statement to make. Yet we say it thoughtfully from the standpoint of the world. Christ is the one who ought to be here. The Father sent him into the world. Why then is he not here? The world would not have him. The world hated him. The world cast him out. But Christ would not leave his own orphans. He graciously sent the Holy Spirit to them and to the angels and the saints, the very presence of the Holy Spirit on earth reproves or brings a guilty, brings in guilty the world. The Holy Spirit is here to take the place unto his disciples of an absent Christ. Thus the guilt of the world is demonstrated. That's a profound statement. Why is Christ not here? Because the world rejected him. Why is the Holy Spirit here? Because the world rejected Christ. He shouldn't be here. He's here for us out of God's kindness, but his presence in the world is a conviction that the world is guilty. Again, the only reason that the Holy Spirit is in the world is because the world rejected Christ. They murdered him. Therefore, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world proves the guilt and sin of the world because they rejected God's Messiah. They rejected God's free offer of mercy, grace, forgiveness of sin through the person of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps we've never thought of it in that context before, but that's the reality. Now, we are obviously thankful as, as uh, believers that Christ has not left us alone as orphans, but the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world is here as a convicting reality because the world murdered the Messiah. They murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, again, the very presence of the Holy Spirit is a declaration of their guilt, proof of their guilt. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So again, the presence of the Holy Spirit proves that men are guilty before a holy God, and through his word, that proclamation, God's word, that proclamation is made. The proclamation, all men fall short of God's glory. All men are under condemnation. All men are guilty of sin and unrighteousness. All men are facing God's judgment. All men are facing an eternity in hell, everlasting punishment. That's what the word of God teaches, propositional truth. Here's reality. You're guilty. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord Jesus Christ realizes that as he's sweating great drops of blood. Verse 9 says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Gone over this numerous times in our study of the Gospel of John, where Jesus has said, like in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. How many times have we talked about the one issue, the one issue that determines people's eternal destiny? is how they see the person of Jesus Christ. What do they think of Christ? What do they see, think of Christ? What do they see of Christ or think of him and their sin and their need of him? And look carefully what Jesus says concerning sin. It's singular, not plural. He's not talking about a whole lot of bad things you've done, not a whole lot of bad things you do. He's saying, look, the one sin that finally and eternally sends people to hell is the rejection of Jesus Christ, God's only means of salvation, God's only means of reconciliation and forgiveness of sin. 
And I've said this before, unbelief is far more than just an error in judgment or a non-consent of the mind. Unbelief is really hardness of heart. And that's the world. And the world today is unchanged. It has no more love for the person of Jesus Christ now than it did 2,000 years previous when they crucified him. They hate him. John, God through John through the Holy Spirit says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the vast majority of the world says, Crucify him. Murder him. Do away with him. The vast majority of the world would say, Well, if there is a God, most of the world would follow that statement up. If there is a God, well, then I'm good enough to get in to heaven on my own. Which, of course, is untrue. Satanic lie that the world holds, holds on to because the world loves lies rather than the truth. John 3.18, the, the Lord Jesus Christ says, John 3.18, he who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe me in me has been what? Judged already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 5, verse 40, the Lord rebuked the religious leaders of Israel and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Now, if this text was teaching on the Holy Spirit's work in the soul upon conversion, then the text would read, he will convict the world, and listen, he will convict the world of unrighteousness. The world's lacking righteousness, but that's not what it says. The work of the Holy Spirit is to declare righteousness. To declare righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. To declare the fact that the only man in the entire world that was able to walk walk right into the presence of God uh, after his death and his own merit is the person of Jesus Christ because he is the only righteous one. Where does Jesus Christ says He is going, he says, I go to the father he's the only one that's be able to walk right into the presence of god every other man fell short every man falls short of the glory of god every man is desperately in need of a righteousness he doesn't possess the righteousness found in the person of jesus christ him alone and men who reject christ and reject christ's righteousness for their own righteousness are going to face god's eternal wrath their sin in the presence of a god whose absolute holiness is going to result in condemnation because what men desperately need is a substitute. And again, that's what we have found the person of Jesus Christ, as God has laid all of our sin upon the person of Jesus Christ, all of our sin, all of our guilt, imputes or credits to us, uh, our, uh, to the righteousness of Christ, lays the guilt, our guilt upon Christ, and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ for those who repent and believe. Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the world. You're, you're, you don't have what you desperately need. Only one person, Jesus Christ, has that. Last verse 11 says, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Bible says very clearly the devil has been utterly defeated by Jesus Christ. He was utterly defeated and judged at the cross. The hour that Satan thought he'd beat Christ was really the hour of his undoing. He's been rendered guilty, Satan. And at the end of the age, he's going to face execution of that judgment upon him. He's going to be cast in the lake of fire along with all those who rebelled against God, and all men who have rejected God's mercy and offer forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And I think the Lord uses this statement specifically here when he says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I think he's saying, look, if the ruler of this world, the the greatest evil, the most evil, the most evil earthly power, uh, most evil power in the universe has already been judged, then certainly so will every unrepentant sinner who rejects the Savior. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. To prove that your sin of rejecting Christ will damn you eternally. Because the righteousness you need to stand in God's presence belong to the person, belongs to the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you don't have His righteousness imputed to you, you'll never stand in God's presence except to face condemnation and eternal wrath. So what he's saying is the greatest evil in the world, if the greatest evil in the world can't escape the God, judgment of God, neither can you. Only chance you have is to repent. And the only two responses to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is either repentance or rejection. And Paul says, for those who continue in hostility and rebellion against God, those who rejected God's mercy through Christ, Second Thessalonians one nine, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There's no possibility of escaping him. Conflict, yeah, conflict in the world. Conflict because of our association with the person of Christ. We have hope. Comfort of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit who's going to be walking with us and in us, empowering us. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world, when he comes as he did on the day of Pentecost, it's conviction against an unbelieving world that they are guilty and they're facing a horrifying eternal future as they've already been judged and declared guilty by the Holy God. We take part in the blessings as those who have repented. We take place in the blessings of God's mercy to us through the Holy Spirit who guides us in the truth and we take part in the ministry of the Holy Spirit when we open the Word of God and just proclaim what it says. We speak forth God's truth, not our own ideas. We proclaim the gospel. We're, we're not trying to convince anybody of anything. We just proclaim the gospel. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that does that work. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, again, convicts the world that they're in a whole lot of trouble apart from Christ. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this hour to open your words, thankful for the truth. I know that's a lot, but I pray that you would help us to retain that which is helpful and to see the convicting work of the Holy Spirit against the world that has rejected you and rejected Christ. And for us who, in your kindness, have opened our eyes to receive that truth, may we grow in our love of you, our love for you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.